Blog Talk Radio.
Mamba Mubiai, Mulubawaji Tanta. Wawaka Yeme, Mwena Menshi. And welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I'm your host, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, December 12th, 2021. Uh, We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to uh, this special edition of our program. Later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, We'll have dispatches on the Ethiopian government's announcement that it is inviting international human rights organizations to visit the Amhara and Afar provinces of the Horn of Africa state. Sudan has denied involvement in supporting the armed opposition groups in uh, neighboring Ethiopia. We'll have details on that as well. Libya says it is prepared to hold elections at the end of the month in this troubled North African state. And uh, Egypt has unearthed uh, historic, uh, an historic site uh, which sheds light on the ancient history of the country. In the second hour, we examine in detail the current situation in Ethiopia with interviews on the character of the opposition and the advances being made uh, by the government on the battlefront. Finally, we review some of the important issues impacting Africa and the world. 
These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program, so stay tuned. We'll take a musical interlude uh, with the band Stimela uh, from the Republic of South Africa. Uh, let's listen in. Thank you. 
you. I Are you fooling me? Are you fooling me? I say. I say. What is a man? What is a man? A man is a rolling stone. A man is a rolling stone. What is a woman? What is a woman? A woman is a grinding stone. A woman is a grinding stone. Shut up! Pick up! Pick up!
Welcome back, and you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for today, uh, Sunday, December 12th, 2021. We're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. That was uh, the music of Stamela, uh, the classic uh, South African band, uh, doing a collection of uh, their most notable compositions. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. Our lead story uh, deals with the situation in the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia. The Ethiopian government has invited international human rights organizations. Uh, They have pledged to accord them the necessary support to get a firsthand account of what the terrorist PPLF did in Amhara and Afar states, uh, the government communication services has said. In a press briefing yesterday, uh, the Government Communications Service State Minister, Salamit Kasa, uh, stated that international organizations and institutions that were outspoken about the government's alleged human rights violations are expected to demonstrate their commitment to civilians. Uh, the government will provide the necessary support to the organizations to conduct in-depth investigations and access areas where thousands of civilians have been massacred and massive property damage has occurred by the PPLF belligerents. State Minister further highlighted that expanding the conflict to Amhara and Afar states 
the TPLF forces summarily executed civilians. They committed gang rapes, looted, and destroyed public and private property, uh, noting the various activities that have been done uh, by uh, the government and other stakeholders to inform the international community about the factions' atrocities. Salamwet stressed that the endeavors are not satisfactory and required further engagement. Uh, in this regard, more work needs to be done in the future, uh, she said, adding that the government is ready to provide all necessary support to those who wish to take part in this work. As to her, the government has been repeatedly stating that the TPLF is committing a number of atrocities in Amhar and Afar states and urging the international organizations to conduct an investigation at the scene of the atrocities and to report uh, to the world. A ministerial task force set up to prosecute perpetrators through a thorough criminal investigation and rehabilitate victims is now operational. The task force is headed by the Ministry of Justice, Ministry of Peace, Ministry of Women and Social Affairs, and Ministry of Finance. These committees are mandated to coordinate uh, the works of conducting a criminal investigation, prosecuting the perpetrators, and investigating sexual assault and mobilizing resources for rehabilitation of the internally uh, displaced uh, persons. And uh, other uh, news uh, from Ethiopia, foreign tourists and residents in the capital of Addis Ababa have refuted uh, the Western media lies about Ethiopia and testified that the country is very peaceful and harmonious as usual. Approached by local media, the foreign tourists and residents said that their safety and well-being is effectively ensured, and Western media bias reports distorted Ethiopia's reality. A visitor and Swahili advocate expressed his concern why Western embassies evacuated their citizens from Ethiopia, an apparently a peaceful country. We don't really know the reason behind it. It is to scare others not to come. Another tourist said, I'm here in, in Toto Park, uh, which is beautiful, uh, about 20 minutes outside of Addis Ababa. Today is Sunday. I'm really looking forward to walking around the park and taking part in some of the activities. It is really nice to see a lot of people out here. I'm very surprised that it is so calm and peaceful. Before I came, I was reading a lot of papers, and they were talking about a lot of problems about Ethiopia, but I see just a very normal day in Addis Ababa, and people enjoying their outdoors. People are enjoying the sun, and everybody is looking forward to having a very nice traditional meal here in the park. Uh, I am really feeling good. And uh, you can read uh, more stories uh, on uh, the current situation in the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia by logging on to the Pan-African Newswire. In other uh, news reports, uh, Sudan has denied accusations about supporting the Tigray People's Liberation after reports by the Ethiopian State Broadcasting Corporation, FANA. Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, Sudan, uh, has carried a story uh, in this regard. The Sudanese Ministry of Foreign Affairs affirmed in a statement its full commitment to the principles of good neighborliness and not interfering in the internal affairs of other countries. The Sudan News Agency uh, published this uh, unofficial translation of the text of the statement issued by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. 
It says that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Republic of Sudan followed up with the astonishment the news published by the Ethiopian State Fauna Broadcasting Corporation on December the 9th, in which it accused Sudan of supporting the Tigray People's Liberation Front. It also claimed that Sudan harbored and trained elements of the Tigray People's Liberation Front to confront the Ethiopian government forces. In the face of these arbitrary allegations that are contrary to the truth, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs would like to affirm Sudan's full commitment to the principles of good neighborlessness and non-interference in the internal affairs of other countries. And that was to the Republic of Sudan Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The statement also calls on Ethiopia to stop accusing Sudan of taking aggressive stances and practices that are not supported by evidence on the ground and would like to affirm that Sudan controls all of this internationally recognized territory and borders with neighboring Ethiopia and has never and will never allow its use for any aggression, unquote. And we'll have more information on uh, the situation in uh, Ethiopia and Sudan uh, later on in our program. However, uh, the situation in Sudan is critical uh, to the outcome of development in neighboring Ethiopia. In the North African state of Libya, it is ready to hold the country's presidential election as planned on December the 24th, despite persistent uncertainty that the crucial vote will go ahead on time. Libya's interior minister, Talib Mazin, spoke uh, during a press conference on the upcoming December 24th election. Now, Ramadan Abu Jannah uh, stated that, quote, we are ready for the elections. He is the interim head of government uh, since Premier Abdul Hamid Beba announced he would run for the presidency. Abu Jannah said that the government has spared no effort to support the Electoral Commission, uh, the HNEC. We have the chance to make December 24th a historic day following a NATO-backed 2011 counter-revolution that overthrew and killed the revolutionary Pan-Africanist Umar Gaddafi. The December 24th polls are intended to help the oil-rich North African country move past a decade of violence, but the process has been undermined by better divisions over the legal basis for the elections, their dates, and who should be allowed to run with a string of controversial figures stepping forward. Quote, nobody should deprive Libyans of this historic deadline, and we will not allow anybody to do so, Abu Jannah told a press conference in the capital of Tripoli, surrounded by several ministers. He said the transitional executive was, quote, ready to hand over power to an elected government. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of the Pan-African Journal. In our last story, uh, archaeologists have unearthed two sad tombs uh, with human remains with golden tongues at the El Anasa archaeological site in the Upper Egypt governance of Minya. That's according to the Tourism and Antiquities Ministry. They made this statement uh, just one week ago. A discovery was made during excavation work uh, carried out by a Spanish archaeological mission from Barcelona University and IPOA. The ministry added in a statement, at the entrance of the first tomb, the mission unearthed two human remains with golden tongues. And inside the tomb, a large limestone sarcophagus has been located with women-shaped lids. 
uh, early studies that revealed that the tomb was previously opened during ancient times and plundered. The second tomb, located adjacent to the first, is intact and completely sealed, said Hassan Amir, professor of Greco-Roman Department at the Faculty of Archaeology at Cairo University and the Mission Excavation Director. It houses a limestone sarcophagus with a man-shaped lid. Two niches contain counterfeit jars as well as collections of ordinary two green science, figurines, amulets, and beads. Evacuations will continue to uncover more secrets inside these tombs along with studies to know more about the golden tongues. The mission has been working in El Anasa area since 1992, led by Maik Mascourt and Esther Pons Maledo. Over these years, several artifacts have been found, including a collection of Saif, Greco, Roman, and Coptic eras. El Banasa uh, was the capital of the 19th gnome of the Upper Egyptian gnomes and is renowned for its papyri with writings in Greek languages, which are published in a number of volumes in Oxford. It is wide framed in the Coptic and Islamic periods. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. And uh, concluding this segment, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. Uh, The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches, papers, magazines, and journals, and research reports and on blogs and websites throughout the world. Uh, the Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire, of uh, some of the most pressing uh, and uh, burning issues of the day, uh, all you need to do uh, is go uh, to our website, and that is at panafricannews.blogspot.com that's panafricannews.blogspot.com and if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal this special worldwide radio broadcast just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal we'll take a break we'll be back with more of our program for this week
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And, of course, um, Mumia Abu-Jamal, a political prisoner here in the United States, has been incarcerated now for 40 years. Uh, He was arrested on December 9th of 1981 in Philadelphia, later charged uh, in the death of a white police officer. There have been many attempts uh, to uh, get Mamiya released from prison and exonerated. Uh, In the last um, decade or more, he has been taken off death row. Nonetheless, uh, he is serving a prison sentence in which he should have been released or not even charged uh, years and years ago, decades ago. We want to uh, play an interview uh, with uh, Mamiya Abu-Jamal recorded uh, earlier this year uh, with Albert Woodfox, who also uh, was a longtime political prisoner uh, in the state of Louisiana at the Angola facility. Uh, Let's listen to Albert Woodfox and Mumia Abu-Jamal. You brothers of the Angola Three did an ungodly bit in the hole. How did the state justify locking you cats, I mean, up for so long? Well, given the... checked and unchallenged power of the prison system in Louisiana. Their justification was the fact that myself, Harmon, and Robert were fighting for humanity, the fact that we were fighting for the maintaining our dignity, pride, self-respect, and our self-worth. They felt was a threat to what they considered to be the orderly function of the prison. That was the justification. The infamous Warden Burrow came, even made a statement once in a deposition that I was the most dangerous man in America. And since I've been out, I would like to think that my activities have proven him to be right. How did y'all endure 40 years in the hole? <laughs> That's the most difficult question to ask. I guess having a political consciousness, you know, that was inspired by by being members of the Black Panther Party. You know, they say knowledge is power. So we had a a sense of uh, what solitary confinement is it was designed for. And so over the decades, you know, it was just strength, determination, values, uh, principles. And we stayed active and we looked to society for inspiration. Uh, the men and women, in some cases, children fighting in society to be heard, fighting to change conditions and stuff, rather than turn inward and allow the prison culture to set examples about how we should live our lives. What gave y'all hope? The love, the, you know, I, we, I had wonderful family, wonderful comrades who made up the International Coalition of Free to Angola Tree, a wonderful legal team. But more than anything, what gave me hope was the guys I lived around, people in society, the social struggle that was being waged, sacrifices that was being made, uh, the indomitable spirit that refused to be broken. You know, those are some of the things that inspired me. You know, one thing in particular was the, the development of Black Lives Matter movement, you know, which I think is a tremendous movement. And it was so proud to uh, see all the young uh, men and women uh, involved uh, in that movement uh, come forth. As a matter of fact, before the pandemic, when Robert and I 
are traveling together and speaking. We always uh, ask the host to arrange as possible so that we can meet with some of the young leaders in, in the movement. So those are the things that uh, gave me hope. It's, you know, love, love of humanity, the indomitable spirit of the people, and the continuous struggle that was going on in society. Well, me and my brother, given the preponderance of evidence, exonerating you and lack of evidence against you, how did it feel to still be in prison? Brother Albert, and in the spirit of all the Angola Three, I salute you. You know, I think of early days, even before trial began. It was a pretrial hearing. I'd read a law book showing cases from the Supreme Court, in the U.S. Supreme Court. So it's based on the Constitution, right? Well, I went to the law library, read those actual cases, and then drew up motions. I made a motion in court. The court promptly denied this motion. I couldn't believe it. But it made me understand that the court, the court that most people meet when they first go into court, wasn't bound by a constitution or Supreme Court rulings. They do whatever they want to do because it really ain't about the law. It's about power. That same judge, Judge Sabo, would later say, and I'm saying in open court, 15 years later, in my case, justice is just an emotional feeling. To quote Malcolm X, don't be shocked when I say I was in prison. Long as you south of the Canadian border, you still in prison. So all power to the people. My brother, what is your most painful personal loss? My mother and our daughter, Edith and Samir. I had dreams of walking with both of them in freedom. And of course, other family members, brothers, sister, uh, cousins, brothers-in-law, uh, Basile, Lydia, Jimmy. They live in our memory and in our hearts. Again, my brother, what is your number one priority when freedom finally comes? The same as it's always been. To serve the people. To work on their behalf. To work for a world where true black liberation is a reality, not just words. As the Rastas say, freedom is a must. Thank you, Brother Woodfox. These commentaries are recorded by Prison Radio. Just for the 
um, these two forces being uh, led at the forefront by uh, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. Yesterday, as we all note, um, the strategic towns of Dase and the industrial town of Kombolta, among uh, many other towns, uh, have also been reclaimed by the national forces. In addition to many strategic locations that have been taken over by the National Defense Forces over the past two weeks, yesterday's feat is a strong blow to the terrorist groups uh, that is currently in disarray. It has to be noted that a week ago, or about uh, a week and a half ago, up to 12 of its senior-ranking uh, military personnel uh, were taken out, which has contributed to this grave defeat on the battlefront. The national forces continue to apprehend TPLF fighters in great numbers, with many also heeding the call that had been extended earlier this week to surrender, and uh, therefore heeding the call and sur surrendering to the defense forces. Um, with uh, a lot of these towns coming under uh, the national defense forces, it is inevitable that there would be a lot of uh, destruction. In the aftermath of TPLF's occupation of, uh, the town, of many towns in the Amhara and um, Afar regions, it has left behind an overwhelming uh, amount of destruction of public and private property, as well as uh, loss of uh, many lives. Um, I would like to take a few minutes now to show you some images that have been captured following the liberation of uh, these towns by national forces. So these are just a few images that have come in from uh, Mazezo. This is destruction of uh, private hotels and properties. Food that had been stolen and dumped. This was humanitarian assistance food that they siphoned off, but dumped on their exit. In Kasagita in Afar, you see that uh, a lot of public infrastructure has been demolished, turned down into ashes. Also in Dabrasina, main uh, point of attacks in, in this city was on hospitals and uh, public health infrastructure, so a lot of medicines were looted. Uh, what they were not able to loot, they uh, destroyed. In Shoah, Rovita, and Gashana, uh, private banks were attacked, uh, looted, uh, as well as you can see, hotels have been looted, property destroyed. Several banks again. Laribala Airport, if you recall, uh, they had done similar act on Aksum Airport as well. So this is uh, the destruction in uh, Lalibala Airport that they have also left behind. Thank you. So these are just uh, initial images uh, that have come in. Uh, obviously, um, over the next few days, we will see the extent of uh, damages and destruction that have been left behind by TPLF, um, also as more documentation is on the way. In addition to the destruction of uh, property uh, directly affecting many lives, there is evidence emerging across many towns of uh, grave atrocities and human rights abuses uh, being inflicted by TPLF upon innocent civilians in those towns. In Gashana, in the North Shawa town of Anzokia, we have reports of uh, mass killings that have been undertaken by the TPLF on innocent civilians. Similarly, there are also vast reports of rape um, that are emerging across these towns that were also occupied by TPLF. 
Again, while these are initial testimonies that uh, we are sharing and that are surfacing, uh, further investigations are needed to expose these grave human rights uh, violations and also to hold the group accountable. Um, at this point in time for the federal side, there are investigators on the ground gathering as much evidence as they can. Um, yet it's also important over here to highlight that um, the failure of uh, some Western countries and international organizations to look into these massive um, human rights uh, violations and atrocities committed by the invading TPLF um, uh, forces in the areas of the Amhara and um, Afar regional um, uh, re regions makes it clear that there might be some politically motivated um, and double standard uh, position when it comes to uh, the way that human rights issues are addressed in Ethiopia, particularly by, uh, this, uh, uh, by these groups. To move on to humanitarian response update in the northern part of the country, um, again, uh, basing it off on the updates that had been provided last week, as per the regional, um, uh, as per reports that have been received from the National Disaster Risk Management Commission and the Emergency Coordination Committee, the spillover of the Tigray conflict in Amhara region uh, is now estimated to have displaced more than 1.4 million people in the region. Uh, this is a notable increase uh, from the figures that I had shared with you last week. Um, also, following the recent military victories against CPLF forces uh, in Amhara region, the government has allocated over 28,000 metric tons of food uh, for more than 2 million people uh, in 24 waradas of North Wallo, North Shawa, and uh, South Wallo. And also, since the government, uh, in these kind of instances, is the first respondent during emergency situations, the first uh, 13 trucks loaded with more than 5,000 quintals of different kind of food have been dispatched to Gashana and uh, Lalibala. In Afar, uh, the estimates that we have now is that more than 1.3 million people are in need of immediate uh, emergency response, and uh, more than uh, or close to 400,000 people have been displaced from 17 uh, waradas directly as a result of TPLF aggression and uh, belligerence in the region. So there are some partners that are engaged in the distribution of uh, around 64,000 quintals of food to conflict-affected people, um, so around 7,500 emergency shelter and non-food items have been distributed in Gulina and Jafrawaradas. Nevertheless, uh, there is still a glaring gap in terms of humanitarian assistance and particularly humanitarian assistance focus uh, for these two regions uh, while uh, the continued global outcry is only focused on the Tigray region. In Tigray, we had uh, already shared that uh, in the last uh, briefing that uh, the UNHS uh, have resumed flights between Addis Ababa and Magale. Result resultantly, to date, uh, four return flights have been conducted from Addis to Magale and from Magale to Addis uh, since the resumption of this uh, service. Um, the, date, the latest figures that I have is that a total of 203 trucks have arrived in Tigray with humanitarian supplies, uh, and this uh, has reached Magale. Um, again, some members of the international community that have been raising concerns about uh, lack of humanitarian assistance in the Tigray region are also still quiet on the holdup of uh, 900 trucks by the TPLF that could be used to transport uh, food and non-food items. And uh, there is growing ed evidence to suggest that um, there is a refusal on the other side to return these trucks. Um, yet TPLF, as we have seen, is still using these trucks to move around its combatants from place to place and also to transport the looted items from areas it has been routed out from. 
So yet again here there is a, uh, there is a double standard exhibited in this regard um, as well uh, where the silence uh, to TPLF's vast human rights um, abuses, uh, the looting of property, the destruction um, as is, has been conducted in real time, uh, the silence is uh, quite questionable. Lastly, uh, last week we had also uh, made a call to Ethiopians living in the diaspora. Again, this is uh, an extension of gratitude to Ethiopians in the diaspora that, is, that are actively engaged uh, on multiple fronts. Uh, the reception uh, by, the, by Ethiopians worldwide to the challenge uh, that had been raised uh, last week, which is the Great Ethiopian Homecoming, has been very, very positive. Um, and this is a message to say that particularly your national carrier, Ethiopian Airlines, has announced 30% off on bookings made till December 20. And there's many other service providers that are engaged uh, in ensuring um, that this uh, uh, great uh, Ethiopian homecoming challenge uh, is uh, done so at a large scale. Similarly, the Ministry of Tourism, which is leading um, a lot of activities under this challenge, has earlier today made announcements in relation to the call, and uh, this would be uh, um, made uh, uh, public or reaches the public in due, time, in due time. So once again, this is to extend the challenge to Ethiopians all around the world and to Friends of Ethiopia uh, to come back and uh, show solidarity with uh, uh, vast sections of uh, uh, society and your compatriots that have been uh, uh, at the brunt of uh, these challenges and atrocities committed by TPLF, but also to show the world um, that uh, what is being uh, lauded or what is being uh, cascaded throughout international uh, media spaces and airwaves is not as it is. So with this, I will open it up to questions uh, that you have on the current issues. So let me start from this end, and I'll come there. Uh, thank you, Vilani Shifarra uh, from ABC. My first question is, uh, uh, as you know, TPLF says that it is uh, making some uh, strategical or tactical retreats rather than uh, uh, receiving a defeating bl uh, blow from the combined forces of Ethiopia, which is spearheaded by Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. Uh, what is your uh, response to that? Uh, and uh, the other question is, a large number of diaspora communities have been, uh, as you said, uh, invited to come uh, home, so what's the level of uh, uh, preparedness by the government and other concerned bodies to properly accommodate uh, these expats? Thank you. Okay, thank you, Shvarla. Um, on the first uh, part of your question, I can't speak on behalf of the TPLF. Um, nevertheless, this allegation of strategic and tactical retreats being made, um, I hold them into the same uh, Space as uh, the, about, two or about the four-week um, uh, rhetoric that had been spun, indicating that they were close to Addis. So I hold it in the same vein, and um, we don't really give it much more weight. I think the advances that have been made by the, by the National Defense Forces, together with allied forces from uh, the two different regions, uh, is testament to the strategic um, uh, preparedness of the National Defense Forces and the federal forces. So I think it speaks in of itself uh, what has been achieved over the past two weeks. On preparedness, uh, there is, I mean, this is uh, the call that is being made is to Ethiopians living in the diaspora, which means uh, this is their home. Coming back home doesn't necessarily entail uh, a big uh, preparedness. Nevertheless, as I had indicated earlier, the Ministry of Tourism 
is the one that is uh, spearheading uh, various activities um, under this uh, challenge. So um, the details of that will be emerging uh, over the next uh, day or so. But again, the call, regardless of any uh, large-scale preparedness, the call is to come and uh, uh, you know, show solidarity with the Ethiopians throughout the country, as well as those that are affected in this time. Thank you for the opportunity. I am Wagaya <coughs> Mulana from Addis Media Network. I'm going to have a couple of questions. The first is uh, uh, to what extent the government forces are marching. Uh, the plan is just kicking them out of uh, the Amhara and Afar regions, or the government has again a uh, plan to seize Makali uh, city again? This is the first question. Uh, next. Uh, since uh, following the calls of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, hundred thousands of uh, the rebel groups are surrendering. So, uh, what, is, what will be done uh, for these captives? Uh, what is the plan? Uh, are the government giving them a training and then uh, heading them to uh, the uh, region, or uh, is there another thing that's planned on behalf of the government? Okay, thank you, Agayo. Uh, the questions that you're asking, this is the purview of uh, the National Defense Forces, so I will defer it to them uh, to reply on these kind of issues. Brooke. Thank you very much. I'm Brooke. Uh, my first question is, a group of countries have recently announced that the government of Ethiopia is uh, rounding up Tigrans in the capital and across the country. So what do you say about that and can you give us a picture into how many people have been arrested as a result of the state of emergency and how they are being handled? The second point is that the Amara region has um, told us or it has given us some picture or figures into the damage uh, in the region caused because of the conflict uh, that, that expanded from the Tigra region to the Amara and Afa region. So do you have a national figure that tells us how much damage has been caused because of the conflict and how, how many years as the Amara region says that it might take 30 years to recover from the damages and do you have a national figure that can tell us what that, that looks like and finally uh, th there has been an effort by the president of Asanjo to negotiate between the TPLF and the Ethiopian government and can you, can you give us the status of that, that, that effort by President Obasanjo. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Brooke. On your first question, uh, with reference to the call that has been made, um, we had already indicated on several occasions uh, that the state of emergency is not uh, targeted at any uh, particular group of people uh, based on their ethnic identity or any uh, form of protected category to which they, they belong to. Uh, so insinuating that it is uh, in that regard is uh, misguided. Um, it's not only misguided, but it is also perpetuating uh, destructive narratives. Um, it is also perpetuating a narrative that is trying uh, to push, uh, you know, along uh, cleavages uh, of uh, what could be uh, deemed as differences by communities outside of Ethiopia, but uh, that is not the case. There are many people under the state of emergency who, um, who have been uh, apprehended by the security sector based on credible evidence and testimony and tips that have been given. The security apparatus has been doing the due investigation and releasing these people as well. So I don't have a figure for you because this is a turnaround process. There's people that are apprehended, there are people that go through the investigation process, and there are people who are uh, released as well. So again, this outcry, uh, for what you stated is um, 
part of the double standard uh, because this is a, a legitimate government. This is a government that is going through the state of, uh, I mean, the constitutional process of enacting um, any kind of measures uh, for security to ensure uh, that state order is, uh, uh, is well protected. So anything uh, that uh, is uh, in direct interference to this is uh, seen as a push towards the sovereignty of the country because these are clear state processes and mandates and processes that uh, the nation is going through. So it doesn't hold water to say that individuals are being held uh, on that. I think it's really important to also um, give the same kind of outcry uh, for what I was mentioning earlier with regards to the vast uh, human rights violations and atrocities that is being uh, waged by a terrorist group uh, on its own people or uh, its own compatriots uh, within the country. So I think that double standard needs to be checked. On the second uh, reference that you were making with the specific figures, uh, as you know, uh, just yesterday uh, about three towns were liberated, so this is an ongoing process. I think it's very hard to pinpoint a final national vigor because these kind of processes are very precise and they do take, uh, you know, specific uh, uh, specific uh, measures need to be taken to, to document this well, and I cannot just uh, share that with you at the top of my head. On the negotiation subject that you've talked about, as I have already relayed before, uh, His Excellency is expected uh, to share this and uh, uh, whatever his findings have been and whatever his proposal is. So in due time, when it is time, we'll uh, alert you on that. Thank you. <coughs> my question is... Um could you please just give us some details on the destruction uh, in terms of uh, human life and uh, property in those two towns, uh, Dathe and uh, Okay, thank you, Melaskato. At today, I don't have this because the news of uh, uh, their liberation is something that came out yesterday. Uh, we do have people, again, as I was uh, saying, uh, federal uh, entities or the concerned federal entities um, are being dispatched to ensure that this kind of data gathering is in there. So I still don't have uh, any information to the level of destruction. But again, uh, looking at the pattern of uh, uh, destruction that the TPLF has left in other towns, uh, I would not uh, doubt that there is much that they have also left behind. And again, this will be emerging within the next few days, so I will share with you the data as it uh, reaches me. Thank you. Welcome back, and uh, that was a, that was a briefing uh, from uh, the spokesperson uh, for Ethiopian Prime Minister Abi Ahmed, uh, talking about uh, recent developments uh, in regard to the war against the uh, TPLF uh, in uh, the region of the north of uh, Ethiopia. And, of course, uh, the situation there uh, has uh, been uh, quite unstable you know, over the last uh, year or more. Uh, nonetheless, uh, there, of course, uh, has been uh, a 
counterattacked uh, by the government uh, on uh, two occasions. And uh, we are here at the Pan-African Journal, uh, this worldwide uh, radio broadcast, this special edition of our program. Uh, we are looking uh, more in-depth uh, at the situation uh, in uh, the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia, uh, where, of course, uh, over uh, the last uh, few uh, weeks and months, uh, there has been a U.S.-backed uh, uh, rebel organization uh, which has been challenging uh, the authority of uh, the Ethiopian government of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. This is another interview um, that uh, we have here. And uh, first of all, I just wanted to remind people that uh, if you want to follow uh, the current situation in uh, Ethiopia, uh, you can read uh, the uh, Pan-African Newswire, and uh, of course we uh, got many articles uh, from uh, the uh, whole situation uh, that is taking place uh, in Ethiopia. And uh, we have, of course, as well, um, delved uh, into analysis uh, in regard uh, to the situation in Ethiopia. And, uh, of course, we have um, not only uh, looked into uh, these groups uh, that have been in opposition to the Ethiopian government, but also presented you uh, with voices uh, from Ethiopia. Uh, this is an interview uh, that was conducted uh, by U.S.-based uh, Ethiopian-American journalist, Hermela, uh, who is from the West Coast and uh, has been doing a lot of exposure uh, in regard uh, to the character uh, of and the class orientation and the foreign policy orientation of the TPLF. Let's listen uh, to this interview uh, that was conducted with one of the founders, one of the co-founders of the TPLF, uh, who has since left the organization, who is saying now that the TPLF has become a terrorist organization. Uh, so let's listen in. I'm joined now by Gudet Aratzion. He is one of the founders of TPLF and joins us from Norway. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to me. Uh, thank you also for uh, having me. Absolutely. So, you know, you're one of the originals, and um, I think it's so important to get your take in this conversation around what's going on in Ethiopia. So I just want to start by asking you, what was the original uh, goal and the original idea when TPLF was formed, and what do you think it has become now? The TPLF's movement was an extension of the Ethiopian student movement. So uh, at that time, the issues were the question of democracy, national question, land reform, and uh, change of government. So the TPLF had all these uh, goals. When it, uh, when it went to uh, the jungle or to the field. Uh, with this, of course, uh, at the beginning, uh, the fighters were humble, very disciplined, and uh, it has also shown some reforms, land reform at the beginning, and uh, it has been giving some services like uh, medical services. Uh, opening some, uh, you know, it is in a remote area where they have never had uh, an access uh, to such things. 
So uh, it was, uh, and also justice, uh, security, uh, because there are a lot of bandits around in the, you know, in the remote areas. So uh, it, it was controlling these bandits and uh, giving them security. So at this stage, it had attracted a big, a large support from the people. And uh, contrary to that, it is the government of the military government of the Turk, which was brutal and was uh, repressive. So uh, it, it didn't take time for people actually to get uh, hearts and minds of the people and get a big support. It did. Uh, then, uh, you know, uh, TPLF was one of the movements in Ethiopia. There was the Eritrean liberation movement as well. So uh, combined forces uh, defeated the, the army and uh, TPLF took power. Now, uh, when it took power, then things have changed. Uh, completely changed. I mean, uh, they have t- taken a different uh, turn. Uh, you know, the issues of democracy, it was not democratic, it was dictatorial. It believes in one party system. It does not allow other parties to operate. Uh, it was corrupt. It was like a, a mafia organization, you can say. It was looting the country. Uh, it was divisive as well. In order to stay in power, it has been playing the different uh, ethnic uh, differences against each other. It was di- di- divisive. It was also polarizing these uh, differences and conflicts in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the different regions. Uh, there were torture, human rights abuses, all this. And then, as a result, uh, so uh, it was in uh, 2018, there was a, a public uh, uprising which has thrown them out of power. Uh, then, uh, after they were deposed or they were pushed out from power, they went back to Tigray. Uh, they want to come back to, uh, to take power by force or by any means. They have been mobilizing uh, the people of Tigray and, uh, well, uh, it has uh, been preparing to take uh, power by force, and then it was trying to use the Tigrians as a cannon further. It, it's just the, the people are dis- uh, dispensable. It, it is not uh, so many. It doesn't uh, bother about the people. And uh, <clears throat> at now, as it seems, just now. It is a terrorist organization, purely a terrorist organization. But now it is in Amhara region. It is looting there, killing people, uh, raping women, uh, distracting institutions and uh, uh, different uh, <coughs> developmental uh, institutions as well. So uh, just now, it is a terrorist organization. So 
the PLF has evolved from a very modest, uh, very uh, humble, disciplined organization into what you see now as a terrorist organization, undisciplined, and a lot of looting and destruction. So I want to uh, contextualize this even further. So just for those who are watching that may not know, TPLF stands for the Tigray People's Liberation Front. It was founded around 1975 by a group of students. I want to talk about how easily it was to mobilize then and why and how easy it is to mobilize now and maybe some of the differences. So back then, you know, when you look back at the reasons that you uh, helped form this group, what was really true for for the people then that got them to mobilize. So obviously there was a communist government that we called DERG, um, and the people of Tigray felt what? Uh, you know, at that time, of course, uh, the question of uh, lack of democracy in the country was a, uh, generally a question of uh, democracy, uh, human rights, and uh, also some land reforms generally on the economic aspect. Uh, uh, land reform uh, to a certain extent is fulfilled, uh, to a certain extent, not much. Yeah, of course, we can see that uh, later on this has been abused by the TPLF itself because uh, they say land is state-owned and they have been uh, uh, displacing farmers and uh, giving them a little compensation and they were uh, making business out of it. So uh, the land issue is not yet uh, completely solved. Uh, of course, uh, land is given to uh, the farmers, peasants, but uh, there, there should have been other uh, supplementary checks or uh, supports to, to, to make this effective. So like uh, innovative ways of farming, uh, <coughs> support with fertilizers uh, and uh, uh, probably also irrigation and other things. This has not been done. This has not been delivered. Uh, so uh, on economic aspects, actually, uh, it's not much done to, especially to the people of Tigray. Uh, these people, uh, they have completely forgotten the people when they went to Addis. Uh, they were making business, they were rich, and uh, they had a lot of money. In fact, uh, they owned uh, the biggest uh, corporations like Effort and the rest in the country. They had a lot of money, but they didn't invest in Tigray because it was not profitable in Tigray. They were after profit, not after uh, the concerns of developing the people. So, they have invested in areas where they get money. That's what they did. So uh, the Tigrayans didn't get uh, anything uh, from in, in terms of uh, economy. They didn't get. So there is still there was that question of economy, uh, <coughs> as a question of democracy still. Uh, this was a very uh, suppressive. Uh, I mean, it follows the most uh, controlled type of system, uh, it believes in uh, one-party system, and it has a network down to the bottom of the family level where it controls the people. So 
question of democracy is located at gate. So this can be issues that would mobilize people. Uh, in terms of uh, national question, where they, they were at the helm of power, the Tigrans were at the helm of the power. Who could they blame now on the national question? They cannot uh, blame anybody. In fact, they were dominant. They, they say they have established a federal system, but this federal system was not a real federal system. It was manipulated by Kitele. So if the complaint on national question comes from the other regions, it, it cannot come from the Tigrans. They have been in power for the last 27 years. So there's a couple of things I want to address. There's so much here. Um, you know, one, you talked about how TPLF, which was a Tigrayan-led movement that went from 1975 till the western back overthrow of the communist government in 91, um, it, it, you know, you say once they got into power that they abandoned the people of Tigray. They didn't really develop Tigray. So my question is, how is it? that if that is true, and there's indication, yes, that absolutely that is true, how were they able to mobilize to Grands again? Uh, yeah, at this time, you know, when uh, they were pushed out of power, they left Ethiopia into a chaos. Uh, then uh, there was conflicts. Ethiopia uh, left news uh, on creating divisions among the people. It is divisive. It polarizes the differences. So uh, the moment they were pushed out, then Ethiopia was in a turmoil. Everywhere there was uh, this national conflict. And uh, the Tigrayans were uh, also negatively seen uh, in regard to the position they had uh, in the government and uh, the role they played there. So they, they, they were, we can say, uh, any region. Uh, points at uh, the Tigrans. Uh, they have, uh, they were the ones who keep us like this, who have been uh, press, uh, <coughs> oppressing us, and they have been the beneficiaries of this government and all these things. So uh, then, in this conflict, in this kind of conflict, there were conflicts between Somali people and the Orom, the Afars and the Somalis. The Orom was against the Amaras, Amaras against the uh, other uh, nationalities. It, it, it was a kind of chaos. This is what the legacy uh, they left to Ethiopia. And then, uh, yes, in this process, the Tigrans were also affected. Uh, they have been attacked in some areas. They have been uh, displaced. Uh, uh, and uh, they, ha they have been also uh, uh, looted. And then uh, this is what happened to the Tigrans. Just like the other people. But the TPLF exploited this very much. It, it said that uh, the current uh, region is against the, the Tigrans. The Amharas are against the Tigrans. There were a lot of people uh, also who were displaced to Tigray from Amhara. So it was a result of their, uh, the system they established that this happened. But they presented it to the Tigrayan people as if it happened to the Tigrayans alone. So they created this bitterness, uh, hatred against others, especially against Amharas. So uh, this has appealed. They gave them at least 
uh, space to maneuver in Tigray. After that, of course, the tension between the Amharas and the Tigrans because of uh, some uh, neighboring uh, disputes also, like Walkaid and other areas that has been active. So uh, they should have uh, solved it when they were in power. They didn't. Then the extension of that continued. So uh, they tried to use uh, uh, these mechanisms, uh, and uh, they were mobilizing the people that uh, we shall prevail, we prevail with our forces, with our power, with Katsuna, and all these things. And uh, they were uh, brainwashing the people as well. They are special people. They have uh, defeated the, the, the Berg army. They are undefeatable special heroes in the area. This is the kind of mentality they have created in the, in the, in the people. And uh, that everything they want, they can achieve it through uh, power. So this, was, uh, this is what they have achieved in this uh, society now. But that's what you see. So they have conflicts with Eritrea. They have conflicts with Amara. They have uh, a conflict with uh, Abiy in general because they want to take the power. So uh, they have all these enemies at the same time, and they mean that they are uh, undefeatable. They can manage to defeat all this. Uh, yeah, to your point, you know, I think one of the most detrimental and concerning points is this uh, idea that they have passed on, that you can get everything by force, uh, that you don't have to negotiate. Even we saw after the federal government declared a humanitarian ceasefire in June, some of the demands that came out of that leadership just seemed to be completely uncompromising considering the position that they were in. And it seems to have been passed down to the people that is this a zero-sum game. Either we're back at the top or we go all the way into Addis or we don't, um, we don't compromise and it just seems to have such a detrimental um, effect on the people. I want to uh, talk a little bit about um, why you left the party. So uh, you left the, the region in 87 uh, through Sudan. At what point and what were some of the circumstances, circumstances rather, uh, that led you to say this is no longer something I can stand behind? Um, it's become different than what I, what, what I went into it thinking it was. Uh, yeah, uh, at least uh, in the organization, at the, I was a member of the Central Committee, the Politium uh, member. I was the vice chairman of the organization as well. So uh, at least uh, at, uh, as I know to the extent that I have been in the organization, uh, there was freedom of uh, discussion, the democratic atmosphere, in the, uh, at least in the leadership. We were taking any issue, discuss any issue without fear, and we, we can uh, debate on things. Uh, but when, uh, in 1977, uh, the, during the formation of the Marxist-Leninist Party, uh, then uh, I had some uh, differing views, uh, disagreements with some of the issues. Uh, somewhere ideological and somewhere, of course, uh, on a tactical basis, on tactical issues. Uh, then uh, I have debated this in the Congress of the uh, Marxist-Leninist Party. 
but uh, a certain group in, in, the, in, the, in the organization have made a click and they were conspiring actually. Then they tried to, I was alone against many in, in these issues. So uh, even then, uh, I was uh, uh, elected to the Central Committee of the uh, Marxist-Leninist Party in the Congress. Everybody has raised his hand in supporting me to be elected. After two days, the Central Committee uh, had a meeting and uh, demoted me from the Central Committee. It just uh, even the people who were uh, guess, uh, invited to the uh, Congress were there. Uh, they, they, they were not. Uh, they didn't leave even to their respective uh, uh, places. They were there. They gathered them and they told them that they had deported, deported, uh, demoted me and Aragorn. Dexter Aragorn. There were some questions, uh, the, the, the critical questions. Why did you elect them then in the first place? What happened these two days? Well, we have elected them because we have seen your, uh, your hands. All of you have raised your hands in electing them. What happened? They said that we have decided in the industrial So anyway, um, uh, after this, uh, I, I wanted to present my uh, disagreement to the Fighters, they didn't allow me. Uh, it took me one and a half years, I think I stayed there, uh, since uh, from 84, 85 to 86. Uh, uh, some years, yeah. Then uh, finally, uh, they said they decided also the Central Committee made a, had a meeting. I, I had opposed them also in one co Congress, in one conference. I have raised and uh, 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 tried to explain my uh, uh, dissent or my disagreement, and then they didn't allow me to present myself there. So after that, they decided uh, that they have uh, <coughs> expelled me from the party. And uh, I said, uh, even with this difference, in as far as this is a national organization, uh, I can continue in the national front not in the, in the Marxist-Leninist party, but I can continue the national front. They said no. So I was forced to leave. That's how I leave uh, to Sudan, and then I came to Norway. And you, you stayed there for a couple of decades after, right? Uh, I want to just clarify sort of one of the points of contention that you're talking about. So what you were suggesting was not to declare themselves as a Marxist-Lenist group so publicly because the environment at the time, especially if they were looking for the backing of the West, that would not uh, be in their favor, and so there was resistance to that, which the irony of that is, ultimately, when they came into power in 91, the whole Marxist-Leninist exactly. ideology just completely went away, right? Yes, exactly. That was one of the points. And uh, also the relationship related to the relationship with the EPLF. They say they have to raise out our differences and campaign against them. I said... We shall explain when we are asked, but we don't have to campaign against them. Then uh, that was also another uh, point of contention in this matter. But also on the ideological issue, 
you know, right at this moment, they, they were declaring that uh, followers of uh, Albanian uh, Marxist party. Uh, you know, uh, at the beginning, we were calling the National Democratic Revolution. That's the China model. And then later on, there has been a lot of debate in communist uh, parties, communist uh, groups about the difference, uh, what is the difference between the People's Democratic Party and the National Democratic Party. So, uh, <clears throat> they say that they are followers of uh, uh, the uh, Albanian party, uh, Hoja party. Then uh, we have differences also on what this uh, People's Democratic Revolution means. So we had a, a long discussion uh, around that, a difference on that. And uh, in fact, uh, I have written an article that I which says that the Marxist-Leninist party of Tigray is blinking to the left, but of course it's to the right. I have written that uh, article actually in Amharic and Tigrina. So uh, we had a difference on that too. So uh, to tell you frankly, uh, this was only just, uh, you know, for number one, uh, it was not essential that uh, this could be a, a point of difference at that time. But uh, the, the, the district wants to take power as a party leader, and so so they have to push me and uh, Dr. Aragar as well, uh, creating some pretexts uh, uh, or uh, uh, some uh, excuses. So that was the, the, the reason. So I left, uh, and uh, uh, even after now, I know, Melas knows what he says. But the rest, they don't know what exactly the differences are. They don't even know it now. That's very interesting. So I just want to clarify, EPLF, I believe, is the Eritrean People's Liberation Front. So there was an issue of how to uh, associate with that group. That was one point of contention. We talked about the Marxist-Lenin Declaration or the Albanian Communism Declaration. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong, what you're saying is it really wasn't that big of a point of contention or it didn't have to be. It was just a matter of intolerance that made that a splitting point, right? And so if, if that's the case, I'm curious what you think about the growing intolerance or what appears to be the growing intolerance uh, within TPLF and what that has done to the party uh, up to this point. Yeah, then uh, from that point, uh, from that time on, people were afraid to express, to express themselves. And uh, it created uh, actually a party of the clique, and finally it was uh, it became a party of one single party, the Melders. Uh, so that's how it evolved, if you see. So uh, people were afraid; uh, they cannot express their views, they cannot go outside the line of the party. Uh, and even if uh, some people, uh, after I left, uh, it was, uh, I heard that many people who have been raising some questions, which looks like mine, uh, have been harassed or some of them imprisoned, detained. Uh, that was how the, they treated people. So the, this was a departure, uh, really a departure line for uh, to be a, uh, uh, so I wouldn't say we're fully democratic, but we had some kind of democratic atmosphere, at least 
among the leadership, but completely disappeared later on. And it created a one. A one dominant person, you can say he was like an emperor, actually. Welcome back. And uh, that was an interview uh, with uh, one of the co-founders of the Degrade People's Liberation Front, uh, an armed opposition group, uh, beginning in the late 1970s and, of course, uh, taking power in 1991 at the aegis of uh, the then administration of uh, President George W.H. Bush Sr., and then, of course, the holding power for 27 years, and uh, now, having been out of power uh, for more than three years, attempting uh, to uh, lead a coalition to overthrow uh, the current Ethiopian government with the assistance of uh, United States imperialism. We'll take a break, and uh, we'll be back uh, with our concluding segment uh, of this program.
The beautiful voice of uh, Phyllis Hyman. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, December 12, 2021. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, we'd like to remind our listeners that if you want to have access to today's program, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, not only can you have access to today's program, but you can have access to well over 1,000 other archived editions of the Pan-African Journal. And the programs can be shared uh, with other listeners uh, through electronic mail, blogs and websites, and social media networks. We want to listen uh, to uh, the Africa Live CGTN report uh, for today, uh, December 12th. 2021, uh, covering a myriad of issues impacting the African continent and the international community in general, including the United States. Let's listen in. This is CGTN, China Global Television Network. Hello and welcome to CGTN. This is The World Today. I'm Lindy Mtongana in Nairobi and these are your top stories. More than 80 people have died in tornadoes that have slammed through six central and southern U.S. states. Security tops the agenda at the G7 foreign ministers meeting in Liverpool. And Australia to shorten the interval for booster shots due to a rise in Omicron cases. Let's start in the United States. More than 100 people are feared dead after at least 30 tornadoes slammed their way through half a dozen states. The vast majority of the deaths were in Kentucky. Dan Williams has more from Mayfield, Kentucky. For as far as the eye can see, there's just block after block of complete devastation, complete destruction, buildings completely leveled, uh, blocks of, uh, of rubble just uh, completely lining the streets here. Uh, now, it has to be said, the full scale of the damage, well, that's still being assessed, but the death toll uh, continues to rise. The emergency crews, they're continuing their search, but the Kentucky governor, Andy Bashir says it will be a miracle uh, for them to find any people still alive uh, as well. But that search rescue does continue here uh, throughout the night, even though the temperatures are continuing to fall here. This is what uh, the Kentucky governor, Andy Bashir, said a little earlier. Beginning late last night and through the very moment that we are standing here, we have lived through some of the toughest uh, hours of our lives as Kentuckians. Uh, this event uh, is the worst, most devastating, most deadly tornado event in Kentucky's history. Well, in all, uh, we know that some uh, around 30 tornadoes, we think, uh, ripped through this area as well as across five other states as well, including an Amazon factory uh, in Illinois, which also saw 
six people killed there. But this, uh, this town, this city of Mayfield, this is really, as you say, the epicenter uh, of the destruction. Uh, President Biden uh, saying that they will do everything it can in order to assist. Uh, and certainly this, uh, the signing of a federal uh, uh, emergency disaster declaration means that uh, these extra resources now can be released. Now, as far as the uh, emergency agency FEMA, well, they are expected to be on the scene uh, later on Sunday. Uh, and you have to remember that here the fire station was damaged, the police station was damaged, so uh, they will be very much supplying uh, much needed equipment as this search and rescue uh, process continues. And of course, <laughs> then begins that uh, rebuilding process as well, which is going to, uh, it's already, as I say, getting cold here. And as we approach winter, uh, there's going to be further challenges ahead uh, as this community uh, grapples uh, once again to understand exactly what happened here uh, on Friday evening. Now, a candle factory in Mayfield was almost demolished after the tornadoes hit, trapping dozens of people, including Kiana Parsons-Perez. She went live on Facebook asking for help and was finally rescued. Okay, I don't know who's watching. We got hit by a hurricane. I'm at work in Mayfield. And we are trapped. Please, y'all, give us some help. We're at the candle factory in Mayfield. Please, please. Um, it was extremely scary. It was extremely scary. Um, everything happened so fast. They had us in the area where you go in case there's a storm, and we were all there, and then the lights got the flicker in, and then all of a sudden we felt a gust of, we could feel the wind, and then my ears kind of start popping, you know, as they would, as if you're on a plane, and then we did like a little rock, like this way and this way, and then boom, everything came down on us, and we, all you heard was screams um, and just hollering and, you know, um, trying to figure out what to do. And it was right. the, absolutely the most terrifying thing I've ever experienced in my life. Well, President Biden says the disaster could be one of the largest tornado outbreaks in U.S. history. In his 40-year career as a meteorologist, Jeff Masters has really seen anything like it. He explained what role climate change may have played in fueling the storms. I was watching the radar last night and I was saying, wait a second, this is December. How is this happening in December? This is the kind of thing you would only see at the height of the season, you know, March, April, May. I'd never seen anything like this uh, this time of year. It's certainly true that climate change is making it more likely to have intense tornadoes outside of the usual season we think of. I mean, the March through June period where you get most of the violent tornadoes because now it's warmer longer and you can have these favorable conditions for tornadoes at different times of the year. Uh, climate change is also changing the area where tornadoes go. It used to be that Oklahoma, Texas, that area was the center of Tornado Alley. In recent decades, that has shifted. It's more in the southeast U.S. It's more towards where we saw last night. So certainly the seasonality is changing. The location we get these storms is changing. But one thing I might mention is there's no evidence yet that climate change is causing an increase in strong tornadoes. We have not seen the numbers to support that sort of thing happening. So that's some good news anyway. 
The G7 summit continues in Liverpool, where UK Foreign Secretary Liz Truss is hosting her counterparts from the world's leading economies. The weekend meeting marks the final major event under Britain's presidency before Germany takes over next year. The UK and France held bilateral talks on Saturday on the sidelines of the conference amid tensions surrounding migrant crossings and fishing licenses. Discussions at the summit include issues such as vaccination efforts against the coronavirus pandemic, Afghanistan and tensions over troop buildup on the border of Russia and Ukraine. The United States and its NATO allies have warned Russia will face heavy sanctions if it invades Ukraine. Moscow has denied any impending invasion. Well, let's bring you more on this now. We go live to Liverpool, where we're joined by Laura mackin Uh Laura, of course, some pressing issues on the agenda. Just talk us through what we expect from today's talks. Well, today is really going to be focusing heavily on the coronavirus pandemic, the global health crisis that is still continuing to affect economies and also take lives, of course. And the emergence of the Omicron variant of the virus is really high up on the agenda, how economies can come together to try to uh, respond to it, to try to prevent people losing their lives, but also protect those economies that are being damaged by the introduction of new lockdowns, new restrictions across Europe uh, in particular. So that is going to be a real issue to talk about today. They're also going to be speaking about vaccine sharing. Now, we know that uh, nations across Africa have been quite vocal in asking developed nations to offer up more uh, to them in terms of vaccination doses. Uh, South Africa has been calling really heavily for that to happen. So we'll see if there's any movement on that here today. And of course, across the whole of this weekend, geopolitics and those issues that are really uh, raising tensions around the globe have also been on the table for discussion. As you say, the situation in Russia, uh, between the, the, on the border, sorry, between Russia and Ukraine, the troop build up there and how each of these areas are trying to posture and work out how to move forward with that. That's been a real significant issue that's been discussed and there's plenty of others to talk about too. Indeed, and of course this year it's more than uh, just the group of seven uh, Indo-Pacific countries have been invited for the first time. South Africa has also been included. Tell us more uh, about that. Yes, so this is all part of the United Kingdom's decision to shift its foreign policy tilt towards the Indo-Pacific, building relations there in terms of security, trade uh, and investment. So that's why those ASEAN nations have been invited to talk, uh, many of them virtually, of course, because of the travel restrictions in place at the moment because of the Omicron variant of COVID-19. Building relations, though, is a big uh, sort of a big issue on the agenda, a big priority for the United Kingdom itself. And as you say, South Africa has been invited to these uh, meetings as well. They also took part in the G7 Leaders Summit uh, in Cornwall back in the summer. That's because uh, Europe and the United Kingdom in particular see South Africa and the continent more widely as an area for investment, for growth, and also a real future power moving forward. So this is about relationship building more than anything and getting everybody on side to try to build those links. Thank you so much. That's Laura McEnisha would lie for us in Liverpool. Now, thousands in Vienna have taken to the streets to protest against COVID-19 measures. 
Austria's government on Thursday announced a compulsory vaccination plan which aims to vaccinate people over the age of 14. Now, under the measures, the unvaccinated will face fines of up to 4,000 US dollars every three months. Austria has one of Western Europe's lowest vaccination rates with only 68% of its population fully vaccinated. If approved by Parliament, the vaccine mandate will start in February and last until early 2024. Well, Australia says it will shorten the time interval for people to get a booster shot due to a rise in Omicron cases. Health officials say people can get a booster shot five months after their second dose as opposed to six months. Meanwhile, the U.S. is urging Americans to get boosters. On Thursday, the FDA gave emergency authorization for 16- and 17-year-olds to get a third dose made by Pfizer and BioNTech. The FDA said rising COVID-19 cases in the U.S. mean the benefits of boosters greatly outweigh the potential risk from the rare side effects. Well, that's it for this edition of The World Today. I'll be back shortly with more news from the continent in Africa Live. Thanks for watching. This is it. I'm just about to be shot. Friends here, bottles are being thrown as they do so. Uh, we there are about three critical <laughs> bridges <laughs> here in Malawi. That's one of them. We're going to cross that bridge. As you can see behind me, police forces who are replying with gas. Yeah, gas just came here. So it's all begun now. Divisions leading the charge into West Mosul have brought us here. This is where most of the fighting has been concentrated. This is the front line now after nine days of fighting. We're about two to three kilometers from the front clear line. view of this front line position.
This is CGTN, China Global Television Network. Libya delays the candidate list for elections scheduled in less than two weeks. Omicron spreads in South Africa, but severe cases remain low. And Somalia's food crisis worsens due to climate change. Hello and a very warm welcome to Africa Live on CGTN. I'm Lindim Tongana in Nairobi, also coming up on the program. In business, Zambia's international bondholders issue demands before a debt relief deal. And in sports, Algeria defeats Morocco after extra time to book a semi-spot. Now, let's start in Libya. The country's election commission says it will not publish a list of presidential candidates until after it settles some pending legal issues. The announcement to postpone the publishing of the list leaves almost no time to hold the election scheduled for December 24th. The stalemate takes place amidst legal chaos whereby different courts have issued contradicting verdicts about whether some candidates can run for office or not. The commission admits that significant delays could increase the risk of derailing the wider peace process in Libya, but says a disputed poll conducted without a clear agreement on rules or eligible candidates could pose immediate dangers to instability. This comes amid growing jostling over the rules and legal basis of a vote aimed at ending a decade of instability. Well, let's bring you some analysis now. We're joined by Dr. Mustafa Faturi, a Libyan academic. Uh, he's uh, joining us live from Paris. Doctor, thank you so much for your time. It has not been an easy road for Libya to get to this point of holding elections, and it seems there are some significant stumbling blocks ahead. Are you surprised by these latest developments? Thank you for having me, Linda. Not, not, not really. I'm, I'm not surprised because uh, from the start, you know, like five months ago, six months ago, we have been hearing from different quarters inside Libya itself and uh, supported by foreign powers, of course. Different uh, political actors have been trying to postpone the elections or have them shelved for another year. So it's not really a big surprise for me. But, uh, you know, the, the latest developments, the, the stumbling blocks called, you know, uh, as characterized, characterized by the election commission in the country, in fact, they do not exist. What is happening in, in, uh, right now is the attempts by first political actors, including, unfortunately, the election commission, which is supposed to be objective and balanced towards everybody and biased towards everybody, they are trying to exclude certain personalities from running for the uh, for the presidential elections scheduled in less than two weeks, and uh, specifically, I mean three people: Mr. Saif uh, al-Islam uh, al-Gaddafi, who enjoys a huge popularity in the country, as well as uh, General Haftar and Mr. Dbeibah, who is the current caretaker by minister. Yes, mm. and of course, the, the, these elections are part of a broader peace process. If they are delayed, what does that do then for Libya's political process and stability? 
Well, that's very difficult question actually to predict the answer for because first of all, it will be very huge uh, public disappointment and the people, generally speaking, will have far less trust in the authorities as well as in the uh, and the mission of the United Nations who has been mediating the conflict and who has successfully reached at this point with its help, of course, whereby we will go for uh, election, public elections, you know. And uh, that's the first thing. The second thing, there is a high possibility of uh, renewed conflict. However, uh, it might not be straight away after the 24th of December. We will see what will uh, what will happen then, and then uh, there is also the possibility that further uh, political feuding between the different parties in the countries, especially in the western and the eastern parts of the, the the dividing line, if you if you like, there will be more political feuding and more delays. If the elections are postponed, as they are, you know, there is a lot of speculations around that point right now, and there is the possibility that they could be postponed until March or February next year. I doubt it will happen that way. If they, were, they are postponed, they will postpone most likely for a longer period of time, and that will open uh, the door for more difficulties and more political disagreements. Mm -hmm. And uh, 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 we, we have to wait and see what the, uh, the new United Nations Secretary General Special Advisor in Libya, Mrs. William, uh, Stephen, uh, Stephanie Williams, who just came back to the role, and she was the man, the woman who actually, uh, you know, uh, devised the whole thing that uh, got us to the election. We have to see what what kind of magic she can comes up and bring Libyans back to the uh, to the election uh, date uh -huh. if they agree a new one. But it will be a huge uh, public disappointment for everybody in Libya. Indeed, indeed. Thank you so much, Dr. Mustafa Faturi, uh, sharing your insights there with us. Thank you. Now, let's go to Sudan. The country has begun investigating the deaths of protesters in the aftermath of a military takeover in October. This comes amid calls for justice for those killed during the demonstrations. The investigation by a committee established by the Public Prosecution Office was among the terms of the agreement signed between General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan and Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok. Thousands took to the streets following the military takeover. Security forces were accused of using live ammunition against demonstrators. The Central Committee of Sudanese Doctors has reported that over 40 protesters were killed. Regular authorities have certain methods of dealing with these investigations. For example, in the police, there are official authorities, a police inspector, in the armed forces, there are military justice, a military prosecution, and means of investigation. If there is cooperation, it is possible, but it will be done through the military and regular mechanisms used within these institutions. The year 2021 marks a major milestone for South Africa as the country marks the 25th anniversary of its post-apartheid constitution. CGTN's Yulisa Jamela has more. South Africa's constitution is one of the most internationally acclaimed constitutions in the world. It is widely acknowledged not only as one of the most progressive constitutions, but also as a transformative constitution, with its primary concern being to facilitate change in political, economic, and social relations in South Africa. It's important to highlight that most the 
that many, if not most, of the advances we've made in our country are because of the constitutional, constitutionally guaranteed human rights. Uh, active citizenry has also been important um, in uh, uh, ensuring access to those rights. So that's a sort of good side, but on the bad side, I mean, this is a, a webinar about um, the Constitution as a catalyst for the achievement of equality. And the problem is that, uh, um, as we all know, we are one of the most inequitable countries in the world uh, as far as, as um, between the haves and the have-nots. Former President Nelson Mandela signed the Constitution of the Republic of South Africa into law in Shabville in the Gauteng province on 10 December 1996. The signing of the constitution in Shabville was a commemorative gesture in remembrance of the people who died during a peaceful demonstration against the vicious pass laws on the 21st of March 1960. The pass laws required black South Africans to carry passbooks known as Dompas at all times and everywhere. The constitution is now being used to promote a common vision for unity in diversity and strengthen the culture of respect for human rights and the rule of law in South Africa. To ensure that the constitution is fully respected and adhered to, the democratic government established the Constitutional Court, South Africa's apex court, to be the ultimate guardian of the constitution. Fundamental respect for the dignity of everybody in a very diverse society. We were asked to go beyond simply dealing with human dignity as the core element to use the equality provisions to get material equality, economic equality. For all the Constitution's failures, the Nelson Mandela Foundation CEO believes that it's the people who should take direct responsibility. It rests on us as people to say we are the constitution. If there is inequality, we have to take the blame. If there's no rule of law in our country, and we're beginning to turn it into a gangster state where young people cannot just walk the streets and feel free to just be, or women cannot just feel free to walk on our streets, then we are to blame. For many South Africans, the Constitution remains a beacon of hope towards a better life. You listen to Jamila for CTN in Johannesburg, South Africa. Now, as more countries continue to record cases of the new COVID-19 variant, Omicron, South African doctors say there is currently no indication the virus is causing more severe illness, even though it is spreading faster than the Delta variant. Now, according to South Africa's National Institute for Communicable Diseases, only about 30% of those hospitalized with COVID-19 in recent weeks have been seriously ill. That's less than half the rate during the first weeks of previous pandemic waves. Well, let's bring you more on this now. I'm joined by Dr. Sabelo Khadebe, a senior lecturer and immunologist at the University of Cape Town. Doctor, thank you so much for your time. Uh, of course, this is encouraging to some extent, uh, less severe cases, but of course Omicron is spreading. Just give us an update on these latest findings on the Omicron variant. So what we know uh, so far is that they, it started uh, mainly in Pretoria, so Gauteng province, and cases have been going up there uh, 
quite quickly, and it's obviously spreading to other provinces as well. Uh, I mean, just today we reported about 17,000 new cases. Um, so it is it, it is spreading fast. I mean, it's doubling every two to three days. Um, but what is encouraging uh, at the moment is that um, it doesn't seem to be uh, we don't get severe cases. Um, so 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 I think that that that's promising, but obviously it, it also means it has the potential to overwhelm uh, hospitals. So, so, so that's essentially what we know so far. Yeah, and of course, as you say, I mean, it's tens of thousands of cases every single day. What then is the impact of this Omicron variant, this new wave, uh, when you look at ongoing efforts to actually end this pandemic in South Africa and beyond? Yeah, I think obviously um, it, it, it is setting the world back a bit in terms of uh, handling the pandemic. Um, I mean, if you look at uh, the, the latest data on uh, the, the vaccine effectiveness of vaccines, so what we know right now is that it probably in the, with the new variant it, it drops to about 25, uh, 35% in people that are fully vaccinated, so two doses of Pfizer. Um, so that is discouraging, but um, I guess uh, it also means that, you know, if you look at countries like the UK, they've had, uh, you know, they've had three plans. I think it was plan A, plan B, plan C. Uh, and they're having to really change and review almost everything because cases are going up and yeah. hospitals are also struggling. So, so I mean, these are countries that also have, you know, almost full vaccination. Um, so, so, yeah, it, it is setting the world back a bit. Um, in some ways. But I mean, I guess we always knew that variants were always going to come. Mm-hmm. Um, we just had to be ready. Well, part of being ready um, is that we're seeing some countries now, of course, telling people that they should get a third dose, that this could actually help uh, protect against uh, Omicron, a third vaccine dose, that is. Well, what does this mean for mm. African countries where, you know, there are some countries that are still struggling to hit those targets, uh, targets rather, of just giving people the very first dose of the vaccine? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the, the vaccine inequity is the real big world problem. Um, you know, Africa, I think less than 10% is vaccinated. So that's, I mean, they, you know, we're not going to reach those targets by or, or vaccinating 40% of the population by end of this year. Uh, and probably, I mean, a lot of countries probably towards 2023, that's when they might be able to vaccinate at least to the first dose. Um, so, so, you know, if we're talking boosters, we're really far ahead in terms of the conversation that we should be having in Africa of, of actually getting vaccines mm. to give people that first step. Um, so I think the countries that are holding vaccines, uh, they should fast track that I mean, and, and give us the, the vaccines to be able to vaccinate people, at least give them the first dose. Indeed. Thank you so much, Dr. Mm. Sabelo Khadebe, joining us there from the University of Cape Town. You are watching Africa Live. We'll have more for you right after this short break.
Climate change and other factors are exacerbating the humanitarian crisis in Somalia. The World Food Program official in the country, Lara Foss, warns the ongoing drought will cause significant famine by next May. Somalia is experiencing its third uh, failed rainy season. Um, and this evolving drought situation is particularly of concern because already we had 3.5 million people um, in, in, in uh, what, what we call an acute phase of uh, food insecurity. It looks like those numbers could even reach as high as 4.6 million in May. This is 30% uh, of the Somali population. Well, Fossey also says over one million children under the age of five are malnourished. A fifth are in a potentially life-threatening condition. Nearly three weeks ago, the Somali government declared a state of emergency and appealed for international assistance. The World Food Programme has provided aid to local residents, mainly for malnourished children and pregnant women. Nigeria is said to have a high prevalence of gender-based violence. That's according to a recent report by the United Nations. The report shows that no less than 45% of women from Kenya, Morocco, Jordan and Nigeria, where the research was conducted, have been exposed to at least one form of violence. CGTN's Kalechi Emekalam reports. 39-year-old Rosalyn Okon is a survivor of domestic violence. She says she suffered intense physical, sexual and emotional abuse in the hands of her ex-husband. She wasn't spared even during her pregnancies. Actions that made her suicidal. Doesn't just beat me. He beats me and rapes me immediately. From four months, I was always induced to trauma. I was trauma induced into premature labor till I almost gave birth. The verbal abuse continued, physical, mental, financial, psychological. Every form he felt he could, you know, overpower me. This is me who has been suicidal on two occasions. So at that hospital bed, I told myself, if I didn't take my life on those two occasions, I would be a foolish woman to go back to that man. Local and international organizations have led several campaigns targeted at eliminating violence against women. Action Aid Nigeria is one of them. They're pushing for social justice and giving more women their voices back. Women are really hit. They are the burden bearers when it comes to conflict. Women are being used as weapons of war. Women are being used, used as weapons of, uh, you know, from these bandits and whatever, in whatever form, whatever form that you, you see women. There isn't much local data detailing the trajectory of gender-based violence in Nigeria, but a recent report released by the UN titled Measuring the Shadow Pandemic Violence Against Women shows a rise in cases of GBV during the pandemic. In Nigeria, about 48% of women suffered at least one form of abuse, directly or indirectly, and advocates say the government needs to do more for the safety of victims. It's important that we have more shelters. A lot of non-governmental organizations actually doesn't have a shelter, but we work through our partners, because that's one of the strengths of ActionAid. Um, it is important that people have funding. I do hope that with this new law of special courts being created for sexual and gender-based violence, the Nigerian judicial system will please take 
people like us, survivors and victims of all forms of gender issues, more serious. And treat our cases urgently. Survivor Rosalie Nakon counts herself lucky to have made it out alive, but there are many others who weren't as lucky. Her encounter has given her a voice of advocacy, encouraging others like her to speak up against a trend that's putting many lives at risk. And advocates also believe that men rising up to protect vulnerable women and girls is key to curbing the menace. Kilichia Mekalam, CGTN Abuja, Nigeria. And to Benin now, where... Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, Africa Live. Uh, from CGTN, and uh, that's going to conclude uh, our program uh, for today, uh, the Pan-African Journal, uh, the special worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. We've been broadcasting live uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again uh, to yet another edition uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal, the special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And uh, as we mentioned uh, yesterday uh, in our previous program, uh, Barry Harris, uh, who was born in the city of Detroit in 1929 on December the 15th, uh, joined the ancestors uh, just five uh, days ago uh, in New Jersey. Uh, Harris made uh, numerous contributions to the field of jazz. Uh, he was uh, heavily influenced uh, by Charlie Parker, uh, Bud Powell, uh, Coleman Hawkins, Lester Young, and many other uh, luminaries uh, within the jazz field. We want to um, conclude uh, with uh, Barry Harris from his album from the 1960s entitled Luminescence. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.